Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Can please stand when you get that. John 2, verse 18. The Bible says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us? Since you do these things, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. I think I'm echoing or something. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Let it go out and let it bear fruit in all these people's hearts, starting with mine. I pray you would anoint these lips of clay and just draw us closer to the teaching and the application of your word. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> I read a story this week that I think sets the stage for today's sermon. A young man was proceeding down the road on a donkey when he came upon a sparrow lying on its back in the road. There he was, a small scrawny object with his thin legs pointed skyward. At first, the man thought that the sparrow was dead. When he found the bird was alive, however, the man got down from his donkey and went forward to speak to him. Are you all right, he asked. Yes, the sparrow answered. This is probably not a true story. <laughs> then what are you doing lying on your back with your legs pointed up at the sky? Haven't you heard the rumor the sparrow asked in return? They say that the sky is going to fall. Even if it does, says the man, surely you don't think you're going to hold it up with those two scrawny legs, do you? The bird looked at him with a solemn face for a moment, then retorted, one does the best one can. Now we chuckle at the story, of course, but the folly of the sparrow is only an illustration of the folly of human beings. If they think they can fall off the wrath of divine judgment by the scrawny legs of human achievements, according to the Bible, this cannot be done. In a TV commercial by credit card company Capital One, a couple is making a purchase at a shopping center. When the clerk tells them how much it will cost, the woman says she will pay the bill with her credit card. Suddenly, 
hordes of barbarians come surging into the store. They run down the aisles yelling with their weapons drawn toward the couple making the credit card purchase. The point of the ad is that making yourself liable to finance charges on credit cards is like bringing in the barbarians. But one quick scene in the ad gives us a spiritual metaphor. As the barbarians charge past one store clerk at the perfume counter, she sprays perfume on them as they pass. And in the same way, trying to civilize a horde of bloodthirsty barbarians to get rid of their foul aroma with just a squirt of perfume is what we are doing when we try to transform sinners by squirting them with religion. Religion cannot change the barbarian that is at the heart of every sinner. Only a relationship with Christ brings a soul conversion that changes a sinner into a saint. But the longer I live, the more convinced that I am that the natural man will do almost anything they can to dodge the full implications of the gospel. The gospel declares that Jesus Christ died to save men. But when this is proclaimed, the non-Christian immediately begins to think of all the other meanings Christ's death might have, as to so avoid the right one. The gospel says that Jesus Christ is the sole way to God. And yet the one who has not yet come to Christ begins to advance other ways of salvation and to argue in defense of the many non-Christian religions. In the same way, whenever the Bible speaks of man's total inability to please God, man will immediately reject that and seek for exceptions. Now this aspect of human nature is known to God, of course. Thus, much of the Bible is given over to declaring the full scope of man's need. In fact, this is one of the two greatest themes in the entire Bible. The first is the utter inability of man to save himself. The second is the way of salvation provided by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18 with me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The first part of John chapter 2 is filled with grace. The second part is filled with truth. Joy and zeal love and holiness. Jesus came to bring both personal renewal and religious reformation. Now remember last week we looked at the holy zeal of Jesus in cleansing the temple. Little Jesus meek and mild had transformed into angry Jesus mad and wild. And that's where we pick up today. You see the, re the religious leaders would have had sort of a religious police force up there on the temple mount. And basically they were asking Jesus, who do you think you are? Do something to prove yourself. So they made a demand. They demanded he give them some kind of sign to show his authority. 
Does this happen today? Sure it does. I'll go to church, Lord, if you will just heal my body. Or, Lord, if you will just get me out of trouble one more time, I promise I'll live like I should. Or, Lord, if you will answer just this one prayer, I'll do whatever you ask. Still, some today want Jesus to prove himself to us by showing us his power. Instead of testing the rightness of his word and the righteousness of his actions, we ask like they did for Jesus to authenticate himself with a sign that compels belief. So they ask him, what gives you the right to do this sort of thing? Now, if a policeman pulls you over for speeding and breaking the law, that's one thing. But if I turn on my hazard lights and try to pull you over in my Chevy Equinox, you'll just look at your spouse and say, the church really did drive him crazy. <laughs> so they say, show us a sign. And Jesus condescends to them with this request when he tells them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And of course, the temple he is speaking of is his body. At this time, the temple had been under construction for 46 years, and it was still not completely finished. As impressive as it was massive, Josephus records that 18,000 men were employed on this project over the course of its renovation. With this, mind, with this in mind, it's easy to see why the Jews thought the Galilean carpenter had to be crazy with his claim to rebuild the whole thing in just three days. The Jews thought that Jesus was talking about the building, but we know Jesus was talking about his body. They challenged his statement because it seemed impossible that anyone could rebuild the temple in just three days. To understand the shock value, it would have been like Jesus saying to us, he would destroy the Empire State Building and rebuild it over the weekend. They did not know yet that Jesus was referring to his death and his resurrection. In fact, when he was on trial for his life, his enemies would bring up this incident and say that he said he could rebuild the temple in three days. I think he's telling them that they had destroyed the physical temple through their greed and covetousness and their love of their own sin. He then speaks of his own physical body and tells them they will attempt to destroy it for the exact same reasons. But when he is resurrected as the head of the body, he will raise up a new temple in the church that is not made of brick and mortar, but of living stones that every believer is a part of. Verse 22 says, his disciples remembered his word. This is the third recorded instance in this chapter of the disciples remembering or believing. In verse 11, when the water was changed to wine, it says that they believed. In verse 17, when the cleansing of the temple happened, it said that they remembered. But here in verse 22, the resurrection calls them to both remember and believe. Did you ever notice that this passage starts and ends with a reference to the scriptures? The verses are 17 and 22, and they tell us of the acts of Christ that they were understood as a result of knowing the scripture. 
How does it stand with you? Do you approach things scripturally as God wants you to? Or are you still trying to puzzle out God's truth with your own weak faculties or human reasonings? The Bible tells us that we will only advance spiritually and we will only hear God's voice as we approach him through the pages of his book. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. When you study the earthly ministry of Jesus, one of the interesting things to look at is how people responded to him. Early on in his ministry, just a few people would follow him. But then he started performing miracles. And as soon as the miracles started happening, the crowds started growing. People are always looking for a good show, aren't they? At the beginning, it was easy for the people to follow the crowd and watch his miracles. But then later on, when his words would begin to penetrate hearts with conviction, and conviction either leads to conversion or opposition. It is impossible to be neutral about this. People had to decide then, and most of them decided against him. Now, at the same time, the teaching became even more difficult. But it really didn't become more difficult. It's just that the people began to really understand what Jesus was saying. They began to understand things like, whoever puts their hand to the plow but then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. They began to understand things like, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They begin to understand things like, take up your cross daily and follow me. And as they begin to understand that kind of teaching, the crowds begin to shrink. They even dwindled down to the point in John chapter 6 that Jesus even had to ask his own disciples, are you also going to leave me? The novelty of the show began to wear off. That's the thing about a show, isn't it? A show always has to be bigger and louder and more dramatic to hold our attention. Otherwise, it just gets old. But faith like this is shallow, superficial, and disingenuous. It was not true saving faith as John's play on words indicates. That word believed in verse 23 and entrusted in verse 24 both come from the same Greek verb. Though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. F.F. Bruce says, verses 24 and 25 seem to discount the belief of these as merely superficial. Jesus made a clear distinction between those who superficially were impressed because they saw the signs and those who penetrated beneath the surface and grasped the truth that was signified by the signs. Or I guess we could say that he had no faith in their faith. Jesus regarded all belief in him as superficial, which does not have at its most essential elements, 
the understanding of the need of God's forgiveness and the conviction that he alone is the mediator of that forgiveness. There are those who seek miraculous signs as proof that Jesus is real and that he loves them. They search for physical, material, or financial verification of his reality. But theirs is a flimsy and faulty faith built upon a sandbar foundation. Because as we will see, Jesus is not committed to those who demand a sign. You see, the problem with signs is they are never enough. It's one thing to respond to a miracle, but quite something else to commit oneself to Christ by continuing in his word. If you base your faith upon signs, you'll always be upset by the one that didn't happen. The prayer that wasn't answered the way you wanted it to be. The healing that didn't come. The payment that didn't arrive. That is why our faith must be based upon what Jesus does as he is revealed in his word. That is why Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the word pointing to Jesus that produces genuine faith. The Greek tells us quite literally that although many trusted in him, he did not trust in them. And the reason why he did not trust in them, because he knew what was in them. Although many claimed to believe, Jesus knew their belief was mere intellectual assent, and it proved nothing. James chapter 2 tells us that even demons have this sort of faith. But like the rocky, the seed that fell on rocky and thorny ground, those who possess such faith hear the word initially, the Bible says they receive it with joy. But because their hearts are never truly changed, they fall away when affliction comes or worldly lust once again beckon them. So what does God see when he looks into the heart of man? If we are to answer that question accurately, we must recognize first that only God can see into a human heart. Consequently, the picture that he paints will be different from what, what we might expect to find there. What then does God see when he looks into the heart of a man or a woman? The answer can be shocking to those who are not steeped in the scripture. The Bible tells us that according to God, the heart is filled with selfishness, mischief, and evil. It is impenitent, darkened, gross, hard, proud, blind, and filled with lust. It is far from God. It is a grim picture, but as long as we see the heart as God sees it, can we begin to appreciate the greatness of the cross and God's love. Sometimes we may ask people even, have you accepted Christ? And I get the sentiment of that, but perhaps the greater question should be, has Christ accepted you? How do I know, Pastor Bill? How do I know if my faith is real? Listen carefully to me. There are a lot of things you can get wrong in life and still not affect your eternity. So how do I know? It's pretty simple, really. 
Do you hate the sin you used to love? Now, I'm not talking about Christians who are struggling with areas of sin. All Christians will struggle with sin as long as we are living in this flesh. There are times that I sin, but here's the key. I hate when I do, and I quickly repent. Here's how I know Bill Scott has been converted. If you gave me $500,000 and put me in the nicest hotel in Las Vegas for one week, and if I knew there was absolutely no chance people would ever find out about my actions during that week, I know in my heart of hearts I wouldn't spend the week drinking gin, snorting coke, and visiting prostitutes. But here's the thing. Before my conversion in 1987, I would have probably have done all of those things. But now, if you give me $500,000, I would spend most of it on the kingdom of God and maybe a Lamborghini. <laughs> I would be willing to buy a used Lamborghini, so don't let that stop you from giving me the money. So what changed? God regenerated my life through salvation. How do I know I'm truly saved? I love the things I used to hate, and I hate the things I used to love. With that said, if you are concerned about where you are at with the Lord this morning, please see me or another Christian in here. Let's look at the first verse of chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Quite a few years ago, Governor Neff, who was the governor of the state of Texas, received an invitation to speak at one of the penitentiaries in that state. He spoke to the assembled prisoners and afterwards said that he'd be around for a while to listen to anything any of the convicts might like to say to him. He would take as much time as they wanted individually and anything they said to him would be kept in strict confidence. The convicts began to come one at a time. One after another told him the story of how they had been unjustly sentenced or innocent and wished to get out. But finally, one man came through and said to him, Governor Neff, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I only want to say that I really did what they convicted me of. But I've been here a number of years. I believe I have paid my debt to society and that if I were to be released, I'd be able to live an upright life and show myself worthy of your mercy. This was the man Governor Neff pardoned. I know, of course, there are imperfections in that illustration. For one thing, some of the men who claim to be innocent might really have been innocent. For another, the man who was pardoned might have been deceiving the governor and might have lived an even more disgraceful life after his release. Still, the point of the story stands. The first step in the rehabilitation of any man is his admission of guilt. To benefit from a doctor, the patient must first admit that he is sick. Just as this is true in medicine, business, and criminal re rehabilitation, so it is also true spiritually. 
Therefore, much of the word of God is given over to revealing man's need so that a person might acknowledge his need for God and turn and seek for a pardon. This pattern of biblical revelation is found all throughout the Gospel of John. Our studies of the Gospel of John have thus far taken us through the first two chapters of this book, with the result that we now come to the famous 2,000-year-old conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus contained in chapter 3. This chapter stresses the need for a new birth and for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But before it does this, I think it first of all stresses man's need for this very thing. Therefore, we must first see Nicodemus as a representative of all men standing as a sinner before God. Now, chapter 2 ended on belief based on miracles. Chapter 3 will begin with a miracle based on belief as we see Jesus encounter with Nicodemus, a man who has sought him for all the right reasons. Now, there is a contrast between the last few verses of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Keep in mind, there are no chapter divisions in Scripture. It would be going from one thing straight to the next. The literal Greek would read at the end of chapter 2, for Jesus knew what was in man, and then it goes right into chapter 3, but there was a man. Now, there's kind of a play on words here. It calls Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, and Nicodemus' name means ruler of the people. And so it would read, Jesus met with the ruler of the people, the ruler of the people. Now, three words come to mind in describing Nicodemus. Religious, rich, and ruler. He's outwardly exactly the kind of guy you would want your daughter to marry. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus was extremely religious. We know this because the entire Pharisaical Brotherhood, numbering around 6,000, was dedicated to keeping the most minute regulations of the Old Testament law as defined by their fellow brotherhood, the scribes. You see, it was the scribes' job to interpret the law. It was the Pharisees' job to implement the law. As for riches, we know Nicodemus was wealthy because in John 19, we read that it was he who bought a hundred pounds of very costly myrrh and aloes to the tomb of Jesus. Thus, it's not surprising to read in some Jewish traditions that it names him as one of the three wealthiest men in all of Israel. Furthermore, the fact that Nicodemus is described as a ruler of the Jews means he was a member of the elite 70-member Jewish Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin, a position that would have guaranteed him the highest regard and respect from the people. And so we now read, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Notice once again, John is deliberately repeating the word man, which occurs in the previous chapter. There we are told that Jesus knew what was in man, and therefore did not commit himself to man. Nicodemus is a man. Consequently, I think we must begin with the recognition that he is introduced above all as a representative of the human race. And he's a great representative too, at least from a human point of view. For if we had lived in Christ's day and had been forced for some reason to choose a man to represent us, a man who would embody the best of our culture 
education, ethics, and piety, Nicodemus would have been a good choice. We would not have chosen the emperor or many of the rulers of Rome because these men were demonstrably corrupt. We would not have chosen the philosophers of Greece because they had no true knowledge of real religion. And we would not have chosen a common and ignorant person. But we might have chosen Nicodemus. It seems that Nicodemus has everything. And yet this is the point of John's account. He was still a failure spiritually because he had never truly found God. According to Jesus, the starting point of the Christian life is rebirth. Before his birth, the Bible says man is a child of wrath. He is alienated from God as Nicodemus was, and he has no real understanding of spiritual things. Nicodemus was a man of high moral character, deep religious hunger, and yet profound spiritual blindness. And so what is this famous conversation about? I'll be at the beach next week, but come back in two weeks to find out. I mean, come next week also. <laughs> Don't do the whole when the pastor's away, the people hook you will play thing. I made that poem up last week. I obviously need a vacation. <laughs> Father, truly, your way is the only way. You offer one way and one way only to the Father. Jesus will later say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. I pray, Father, for every person represented in this room today, that wherever we are, you would draw us even closer to yourself, either through salvation, through sanctification, through strength and encouragement, whatever we need, Lord, only you can provide any of those things. So do that for us, Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.